Section 7 of Three Science Fiction Novellas by Lee Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 7 of Enchantress of Venus. Stark had been in places before that oppressed him with a sense of their strangeness or their wickedness. Sinharat, the lovely ruin of coral and gold lost in the Martian wastes. Jakara, Valkis, the low canal towns that smell of blood and wine. The cliff caves of Arianarod, on the edge of Darkside, the buried tomb cities of Callisto. But this, this was a nightmare to haunt a man's dreams. He stared about him as he went in the long line of slaves, and felt such a cold shuddering contraction of his belly as he had never known before. Wide avenues paved with polished blocks of stone, perfect as even mirrors. Buildings, tall and stately, pure and plain, with a calm strength that could outlast the ages. Black, all black, with no fripperies of paint or carving to soften them, only here and there a window like a drowned jewel glinting through the red. Vines like drifts of snow cascading down the stones, gardens with close-clipped turf and flowers lifting bright on their green stalks, their petals open to a daylight that was gone, their head bending as though to some forgotten breeze. All neat, all tended, the branches pruned, the fresh soil turned this morning. By whose hand? Stark remembered the great forest dreaming at the bottom of the gulf, and shivered. He did not like to think how long ago these flowers must have opened their young bloom to the last light they were ever going to see. For they were dead, dead as the forest, dead as the city, forever bright and dead. Stark thought that it must always have been a silent city. It was impossible to imagine noisy throngs flocking to a market square down those immense avenues. The black walls were not made to echo song or laughter. Even the children must have moved quietly along the garden paths, small wise creatures born to an ancient dignity. He was beginning to understand now the meaning of that weird forest. The Gulf of Sharoon had not always been a gulf. It had been a valley, rich, fertile, with this great city in its arms and here and there on the upper slopes of the retreat of some noble or philosopher, of which the castle of the Lahari was a survivor. A wall or rock had held back the Red Sea from this valley. And then, somehow, the wall had cracked, and the sullen crimson tide had flowed slowly, slowly into the fertile bottoms, rising higher, lapping the towers and the treetops in swirling flame, drowning the land forever. Stark wondered if the people had known the disaster was coming, if they had gone forth to tend their gardens for the last time so that they might remain perfect in the embalming gases of the sea. The columns of slaves herded by overseers armed with small black weapons similar to the one Egil had used came out into a broad square whose farther edges were veiled in the red murk. And Stark looked on the ruin, a great building had fallen in the center of the square. The gods only knew what force had burst its walls and tossed the giant blocks like pebbles into a heap. But there it was, the one untidy thing in the city, a mountain of debris. Nothing else was damaged. 
it seemed that this had been the place of temples, and they stood unharmed, ranked around the sides of the square, the dim fires rippling through their open porticos. Deep in their inner shadows, Stark thought he could make out images, gigantic things brooding in the spark-shot gloom. He had no chance to study them. The overseers cursed them on, and now he saw what use the slaves were put to. They were clearing away the wreckage of the fallen building. Helvey whispered, "'For sixteen years men have slaved and died down here, and the work is not half done. And why do the Lahari want it done at all? I'll tell you why. Because they are mad. Mad as swamp dragons gone musteth in the spring.' It seemed madness indeed to labor at this pile of rocks in a dead city at the bottom of the sea. It was madness. And yet the Lahari, although they might be insane, were not fools. There was a reason for it, and Stark was sure it was a good reason. Good for the Lahari, at any rate. An overseer came up to Stark, thrusting him roughly forward toward a sledge already partly loaded with broken rocks. Stark hesitated, his eyes turning ugly, and Helvey said, "'Come on, you fool! Do you want to be down flat on your back again?' Stark glanced at the little weapon, blunt and ready, and turned reluctantly to obey. And there began his servitude. It was a weird sort of life he led. For a while he tried to reckon time by the periods of work and sleep, but he lost count, and it did not greatly matter anyway.' He labored with the others, hauling the huge blocks away, clearing out the cellars that were partly barred, shoring up weak walls underground. The slaves clung to their old habit of thought, calling the work periods days and the sleep periods nights. Each day Egil, or his brother Cond, came to see what had been done, and went away black-browed and disappointed, ordering the work speeded up. Creon was there also much of the time. He would come slowly in his awkward, crab-wise way and perch like a pale gargoyle on the stones, never speaking, watching with his sad, beautiful eyes. He woke a vague foreboding in Stark. There was something awesome in Creon's silent patience, as though he waited the coming of some black doom, long delayed but inevitable. Stark would remember the prophecy and shiver. It was obvious to Stark after a while that the Lahari were clearing the building to get at the cellars underneath. The great dark caverns already barred had yielded nothing, but the brothers still hoped. Over and over, Cond and Egil sounded the walls and the floors, prying here and there, and chafing at the delay in opening up the underground labyrinth. What they hoped to find, no one knew. Vara came too. Alone, and often, she would drift down through the dim, mist-fires and watch, smiling a secret smile, her hair like blown silver where the currents played with it. She had nothing but curt words for Egil, but she kept her eyes on the great dark earthman, and there was a look in them that stirred his blood. Egil was not blind, and it stirred his too, but in a different way. Zareth saw that look. She kept as close to Stark as possible, asking no favors but following him around with a sort of quiet devotion, seeming contented only when she was near him. 
one night in the slave barracks she crouched beside his pallet her hand on his bare knee she did not speak and her face was hidden by the floating masses of her hair stark turned her head so that he could see her pushing the pale cloud gently away what troubles you little sister her eyes were wide and shadowed with some vague fear but she only said it is not my place to speak why not because her mouth trembled and then suddenly she said oh it's foolish i know but the woman of the lahari what about her she watches you always she watches you and the lord eagle is angry there is something in her mind and it will bring you only evil i know it it seems to me said stark wryly that the lahari have already done as much evil as possible to all of us no answered zareth with an odd wisdom our hearts are still clean stark smiled he leaned over and kissed her i'll be careful little sister quite suddenly she flung her arms around his neck and clung to him tightly and stark's face sobered he patted her rather awkwardly and then she had gone to curl up on her own pallet with her head buried in her arms stark lay down his heart was sad and there was a stinging moisture in his eyes the red eternities dragged on stark learned what helvey had meant when he said that the mind broke before the body the sea bottom was no place for creatures of the upper air he learned also the meaning of the metal collars and the manner of tobel's death helvey explained there are boundaries laid down within them we may range if we have the strength and the desire after work beyond them we may not go and there is no chance of escape by breaking through the barrier how this is done i do not understand but it is so and the collars are the key to it when a slave approaches the barrier the collar brightens as though with fire and the slave falls i have tried this myself and i know half paralyzed you may still crawl back to safety but if you are mad as tobel was and charge the barrier strongly he made a cutting motion with his hands stark nodded he did not attempt to explain electricity or electronic vibrations to helvey but it seemed plain enough that the force with which the lahari kept their slaves in check was something of the sort the callers acted as conductors perhaps for the same type of beam that was generated in the hand weapons when the metal broke the invisible boundary line it triggered off a force beam from the central power station in the manner of the obedient electric eye that opens doors and rings alarm bells first a warning then death the boundaries were wide enough extending around the city and enclosing a good bit of forest beyond it there was no possibility of a slave hiding among the trees because the collar could be traced by the same type of beam turned to low power and the punishment meted out to a retaken man was such that few were foolish enough to try that game the surface of course was utterly forbidden the one unguarded spot was the island where the central power station was and here the slaves were allowed to come sometimes at night the lahari had discovered that they lived longer and worked better if they had an occasional breath of air and a look at the sky 
Many times Stark made that pilgrimage with the others. Up from the red depths they would come, through the reeling bands of fire where the currents ran, through the clouds of crimson sparks and the sullen patches of stillness that were like pools of blood, a company of white ghosts shrouded in flame, rising from their tomb for a little taste of the world they had lost. It didn't matter that they were so weary they had barely the strength to get back to the barracks and sleep. They found the strength. To walk again on the open ground, to be rid of the eternal crimson dusk and the oppressive weight on the chest, to look up into the hot blue night of Venus and smell the fragrance of the lia tree borne on the land wind. They found the strength. They sang here sitting on the island rocks and staring through the mists toward the shore they would never see again. It was their chanting that Stark had heard when he came down the gulf with Malthor, that wordless cry of grief and loss. Now he was here himself, holding Zareth close to comfort her and joining his own deep voice into that primitive reproach to the gods. While he sat, howling like the savage he was, he studied the power plant, a squat blockhouse of a place. On the nights the slaves came, guards were stationed outside to warn them away. The blockhouse was doubly guarded with the shock beam. To attempt to take it by force would only mean death for all concerned. Stark gave up the idea for the time being. There never was a second when escape was not in his thoughts, but he was too old in the game to break his neck against a stone wall. Like Malthor, he would wait. Zareth and Helvi both changed after Stark's coming. Though they never talked of breaking free, both of them lost their air of hopelessness. Stark made neither plans nor promises. But Helvi knew him from of old, and the girl had her own subtle understanding, and they held up their heads again. Then, one day, as the work was ending, Vara came smiling out of the red murk and beckoned to him, and Stark's heart gave a great leap. Without a backward look he left Helvi and Zareth, and went with her, down the wide still avenue that led outward to the forest. End of Part 7